Hi there. Welcome to another episode of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship guide and coach, and I'm the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my services or about the podcast, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We'd also really love your feedback, which you can provide by going to the BertScholl.com contact page and filling out the form. Please do. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at But Seriously The Cancer Podcast and on Twitter at But Seriously TCP. And make sure you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash But Seriously The Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Eileen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Welcome. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Like I, I, I was thinking to myself earlier, it's springtime and things are getting better here. I'm in Massachusetts, so a lot of us are getting vaccinated. So it's it's a positive time. Yeah, I was driving down the street the other day and noticed a tree in full bloom pink flowers. And I just went, oh, my goodness. And then the next day I looked around and I'm like, oh, there's green buds everywhere. And so I went through a walk for a, I went for a walk through the neighborhood and I saw some more pink flowered trees and I look at this gorgeous gothic house in our neighborhood. I don't know what this thing's doing here. It's just so pretty. And there's a tree that's got to be like over three stories tall and it has these long hanging branches that are all covered in little pink flowers. Oh, it's a cherry tree. Is that what it is? Yeah, I'm it's like, probably a cherry tree. What kind of magic is this? Yeah, they're crazy. <laughs> I lived in Washington, D.C., and so cherry trees are a big thing, cherry tree blossoms, and they happen earlier in, in D.C. because it's warmer, but right. it's they're beautiful, so beautiful. And the songbirds are singing. It is a beautiful time, and it helps at a time like now. It does. As we're all tired. Yes, we're all tired of our our own four walls at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I just want to say it out of the gates. Like, I found you on Instagram and love your feed. It's, uh, you know, everyone, when you're you're listening, tell everybody right now what your uh, feed is called. I love the name, but I'd rather have you tell everybody. It's called Can You Make Hair? Uh, And then on on Facebook, it's can you make hair for me? I think it's the whole thing, but I think on Instagram, it's can you can you make hair? Well, good. I'm gonna find you on Facebook then. It's uh, so yeah, I find your feed and I start scrolling through it, and your what you bring to each photo. Like when I look at your eyes and your facial expressions. Yeah, and your beautiful bald head. It's like, this is not your first rodeo, obviously. <laughs> and it's so masterfully done. I just love it. I well, love. Thank, thank you. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been a crazy, long, strange trip, hasn't it? Um, I started, so Can You Make Hair For Me is um, a self-portrait project that I started back in 2019 when I was actively receiving chemotherapy. Mm. And as a lot of us who have received chemotherapy know, one of the telltale signs is you lose your hair. 
And when I when I lost my hair, I, I think I, I started losing my hair in February of, of 2019. I started chemo in, in January of 2019. And I have um I had lymphoma. And I okay. think what happens is there's um we all sort of have a sense of our own identity, I think. And that identity is very visual to us. I think we are used to what we look like and we are used to seeing um, maybe family photos uh, of us and how we've progressed and how we've changed and, you know, aged or grown and that sort of thing. And I, I think when you start to lose your hair, and I also lost my eyebrows and, mm. you know, some people lose all of the hair in their body and I did, uh, not everybody does. Um, so I lost all of my hair. And I think that, you know, that was such a, um, a shift for me in terms of my identity. And I really didn't recognize who I was and I, I didn't know who I was anymore. Mm-hmm. And it took me, oh my gosh, it took a while. It took, I want to say like close to six weeks before I could look myself in the mirror and just, and see my bald head. I, it, it was such a shock to me. Um, ah. And it was frightening. I think that that's the other thing I think I, I didn't expect was how frightening it was to go through all of those physical changes and not really be prepared for that, for those changes. But, you know, kind of, I think what happened was once as a, as an artist, like once I started to look at my bald head, I sort of saw it as, you know, a potential, like I saw potential there. And I said, oh, you know, what can I do with this space, you know, as a, as, as an artist. And, you know, I started writing on my head and, Mm. you know, I started doing all kinds of different things. Like I had blonde on one side, brunette on the other. And, And then at one point I just said, you know, you know, maybe, maybe I need to be additive. Maybe I need to put back what I lost. And so I thought about that for a while. And I think as, as you, I, you know, as people know, when they have cancer, you know, everybody wants to help you. All of your friends want to help and family wants to help you. And I don't think they know how. And that was my experience is that you have all of this kindness and all of these people who are so willing to be supportive of what you're going through, but they don't necessarily know what you need as a cancer patient. And me as an artist, like I, I really didn't need pot roast. Like, you know, I couldn't eat anything <laughs> and I was getting a lot of pot roast. I was getting a lot of salad, which cracked me up because there was no way I was going to be eating salad during Cuba. I, I mean, I was so sick. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know how Picasso had his blue period. I always sort of look at my food period. I, I went through a white period where all I could eat were, you know, things like, um, cottage cheese, you know, bread, um, oatmeal, milk, yogurt. That was, and, and that was about it. And, and protein shakes. I, I had to have a lot of those as I think most cancer patients know you have to keep that protein coming in. So we, we drink ridiculous amounts of protein more than is really humanly possible. I never really met my quota for, for protein every day, <laughs> but, um, so, so in, in, my and having all the all of my routines change and all of you know simple things like meals changing and things like that and then you know being alone and in, in in my house a lot um you know i i really didn't know what to do i i sort of had to rebuild who i was as a as a person 
And just, you know, one day I just thought to myself, well, I'm just going to ask people if they want to make hair for me and, and I'll make some hair and we'll just see what happens. And, you know, people just seem to really enjoy doing that. Mm. <laughs> and so now like 80 or 90 later, you know, the project has, has changed and grown over all of that time. But, you know, essentially I'm still working with my bald head and, and I'm still working with those identity issues. I think even though I'm cancer free now, I, I still have identity issues uh, around that come that stem from my treatment and, you know, stem from just having so much change in my life. Yeah. And so, you know, that's sort of where I am with it. I, you know, I continue to do it. I actually shave my head now and I shave it m partly because of COVID because I don't really want to go get a haircut and partly because of the identity issues that I've had. I, I just don't identify myself any longer as somebody who had really long hair. I just, I don't know where, what my, where my identity, identity is going to land, but right now um, not having hair seems like the best thing for me. And it's the easiest thing for me. And not to mention that it's really economical. Because as women, you know, as, as a woman, like I, you know, we're gouged when it comes to like hair care and, and that pressure about your hair and, and that sort of thing. And I said, well, I'm going to just alleviate that because I don't really need that in my, my life. Because we, when you have cancer, you know, you find that you kind of you start pruning things out of your life. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if there are people that you are who are negative, you sort of prune them away. And if there are activities that aren't positive for you, you prune those away. And so one of the things that I ended up doing was just, just getting rid of my hair because it was just not a positive thing for me. And it still isn't at this point. Gotcha. And I'm still working on how that's going to resolve itself. I don't know. <laughs> now, are you a performer? That's I'm, I am a perf, uh, I will say I'm a performative artist. So okay. Yes, I wouldn't say I'm an actor. I say I would say we are all actors, mm. right? I would say that everybody is an actor in some form or another. But for me, I'm sort of a performative photographer, I guess. So I I perform these self-portraits for the camera. And as I and the more I do them, I think the less less performing happens and the more behavior starts to happen. But yeah, I definitely okay. go in to that with that kind of mindset that it's a performance and that it's and that there's a beginning and an end and it doesn't go on once the camera's off right that character is gone mm. so it's a very finite short period of time so it's kind of interesting working with all of these characters for just very short periods and just seeing what you can do with them so before you created can you make hair you were already doing these kinds of photo shoots, right? So this wasn't new? No, it was new. I was a photographer and I, I'll tell you what my, my MO was. I would go out in my community and find people who I thought were interesting or doing interesting things. And I'd start a conversation with them and I'd try to get their picture. So there, there are different places where I would go. I'd hang out in parking lots a lot. I'd go to the beach. Um, Sometimes I'd go to um, hotels and, and just try to meet people who are interesting looking. And I, I really was interested in, in sort of how transient the, 
Cape Cod is as a community. We have tourists coming and going. There's a lot of movement here and a lot of shifts that way. And I was interested in those people. But what happened was when, you know, I ended up having cancer and my, my immune, my immune system was compromised. I couldn't go out and work that way anymore as a photographer. I, I would say that going around speaking to people and, you know, walking up to people is a sense, it is in a sense a performance, right? You know, you've got to sell them on what you're doing and convince them that's a good idea that you mm -hmm. take their picture because not everybody wants that. And, right. you know, so that those were skills that I already sort of had. And then once I started the project, I think I kind of absorbed personalities of people that I would have loved to have photographed, but maybe wasn't able to get their picture. So mm. I sort of became the people I wanted to photograph. Yeah, you got on the put yourself on the other side of the lens. Yeah, it was really difficult. The, the reason really I hard. asked is because you said that it has so affected your identity. And you know, at the surface, what I notice is as a man, like when I did chemo the first time or the first, you know, six month treatment, my hair fell out, but my eyebrows and beard did not. So I was just a guy with a bald head and I got a decent shaped head, so it didn't look bad, you know. Mm -hmm. But for women, when they lose their hair, like there's a bald men is just part of society. You know, there's some few there's a few women that have been bald or are bald that but they really stand out. You know, it's it's, it's becoming less and less of a thing. But it's, you know, historically been a whole lot more for a woman to lose her hair and then to lose your eyebrows as well. Like it's uh, I'm just curious if I may ask you, you know, what what was may i ask what the struggle with your identity was more specifically what it was i think that when you become a cancer patient there are certain there's certain expectations that the community and people around you have for instance you're supposed to be sick you're supposed to maybe lose your hair you could die right so there are already preconceived notions about what a cancer patient is. And I didn't really fit into those preconceived notions. And so I felt very isolated as somebody with cancer. I, you know, like I mentioned before, my immune system was compromised. So there wasn't a lot of interaction between me and other people. And I think sort of losing my job during that time you know, as Americans, we are very attached to our jobs. And, you know, we, we always, you know, you meet somebody, oh, what do you do? You know, what that's one of the first things right. we say as Americans, right? And so when I, I didn't have a job, I, I owned a, you know, small business and, you know, I just sort of lost that. I couldn't possibly maintain that. I did the best I could. But so that portion of my identity was gone. And then my physical identity was so altered that, you know, I just sort of felt like I was left alone with an alternate self. Like I felt like this was another person and I really had to start all over again. And I think I still am in the process of starting over again. I still don't know exactly what's happening and, and what I'm going to do. But, you know, I, I think it gave me on the positive side, it gave me a huge opportunity to really learn who I was and, and to learn what I could do. You know, there's a lot of possibility in cancer. And I think we think about the negative and we think about 
you know, how we're hampered and how ill we are. I mean, I felt all of that. I was terribly sick. Mm-hmm. But when I wasn't feeling horrible, I managed to try to do something with with my situation. I'm very active. So, you know, I found an, an expressive activity and photography for me is an expressive activity. Gardening can be an expressive activity. Right. I think walking can be an expressive activity. Right. And I think we all need to find the activity that works for us and keeping the mind active and keeping ourselves absorbed in some sort of project or task is is so helpful when you're lacking in, in other areas of your life. It's vital. Right? It's vital. Yes. Yeah. My first diagnosis, mm-hmm. I created a blog and it went from health updates to emotional, or, or may I say, it went from health updates to an emotional expression, you know, of my, my, my expression of my emotional experience. And I was, you know, deeply honest and vulnerable and it was public and uh <clears throat> and that provided me you know something to live into it provided me a, a powerful future and the second time I was diagnosed you know I've told you before we started recording that you know I'm a performer a musician a songwriter first time I was diagnosed I wrote one song and it was because of the insensitive person that I became after being on morphine for god like a year and a half uh, but the second diagnosis, I was writing songs and performing. And so like, you know, I do chemo every couple of weeks and do a show once a month or so on the off week and just, you know, have, you know, we'd be a, a four piece band, you know, uh, I'm playing guitar. I got an upright bass player, a guy on fiddle and a guy on electric guitar. And we're just, you know, blowing the roof up off the bar. Oh my goodness. It was just like, you know, it was my medicine. It was so powerful. And it's so important that each one of us, again, you don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be a performer. You can go on walks. You can do whatever it is you do. You can uh, just, but have something that you pursue. Having something you pursue is really powerful, really helpful. And I love, oh, go ahead. What? Well, I have a question for you about that. Uh, how much did you did the audience play a role in making you feel better or making you feel energized? That's a great question. So all the difference. I when I perform, I don't enjoy being special. <clears throat> now let me elaborate on that. There's a part of me that really wants to be special. I want to be the special one. I want everyone to think I'm special. But when I am, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, get out of here. So I realized just like, just like a low level energy of wanting to be special. It's like, you know, so I'm kind of just, I'm kind of not, I don't really give that much uh, attention at all other than to look the other way. And when I'm performing, people are saying, wow, you know, that was so fantastic. We loved it. But you got to get like when you're dancing and having a great time listening to the music, that's just filling me. It's like, I'm watching the show. I'm getting a full... I mean, yeah, I love performing and, 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 and doing what we do with everybody and getting creative on stage. You know, that's, it's wonderful and it's, it's a real joy. But the response of the audience, the connection that we have as a group, it's, you know, it's so cliche to, for people to say, you know, like, you know, it's, it's really the experience I want with all of you. But, like, it's, it's, I get it. It's so real. It's a, I can't do it without you. And the more people respond the more I generate, you know, I'll get off the stage and 
mean, aside from the chemo years, like, you know, I get off the stage and I'm just like, you know, I've got energy for hours. <laughs> it's it's right, so right. that really fueled me. Everyone's energy and excitement when I would uh, uh, perform. I had a song that I wrote in the midst of treatment called Dead Man Walking. And it was a love song for my little boy because one day he asked if we could or how do I say this? No, the day I was diagnosed the second time, I get the phone call. They're like, yeah, we need you to come in. Uh, it looks like the cancer's back. It's, you know, metastasized to my liver. I was originally diagnosed in 2007 with stage two rectal cancer and then got my treatment. It was all clear, cancer-free. And then in, on September 1st of 2011, I was diagnosed with stage four metastasis to my liver. And there's been no evidence of disease since the surgery on October of that year, 2011. But that day, yeah, thanks. That day, my son was almost five, you know, and he says, Papa, can we go to the waterfall? Because we used to always go to the waterfall. And there's a small creek. I'm like, I'm having the thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. And he says, can we go to the waterfall? So I'm like, of course. You know, because his mom and I had split up and... So it's just me and him that half of the week. I take him to the waterfall, and he's on one side of the creek. I'm on the other, and I just saw uh, River Styx, and you know, and I'm in Hades. Putting a coin under your tongue. Yeah, around the <laughs> eyes, ready. right? Too cool. Yep. <laughs> and I just heard this song, "Dead Man Walking," and I'm like, it, it, "It's all. It's written in minor chords, so it's a dark song, and it's a powerful tune. With it's like." I'm not leaving you, kid. Like, my body might go, but don't put those damn coins on my eyes because I don't want them because I'm not going. I'm staying on his side with him, you know? And so I performed that, and I remember the first time I played it. And of course, you know, it was an intensely intimate, vulnerable, you know, song to play for everyone because I was talking about the fact that I really thought I was going to die. And, you know, you can feel that in the room and everyone's looking at me like, oh, my gosh. So so do you feel like when so when that happened and you you finally got to perform the song, did you almost feel like you were out of it? Like, was it an outer body experience for you in a way? Like, it's like almost like somebody else is on automatic and it's not you, you know, a hundred percent. I'm singing the song and it's all just coming out. It's all just wrote. And what I'm doing is observing the people. And like bringing joy to my face to engage with them. Uh, I didn't want them to feel bad. I didn't want them to go to the place of like, wow, Bert might die. When the reality is like, well, that is what you're singing about, sir. <laughs> but yeah, it was just, it was, you know, as a musical performer, you know, it's quite common. Like, you know, I've had like, I had this like eight piece band one time. We did a huge show. Uh, Great room, great stage, great sound. We're doing the last song. It's a super high energy barn burner. We're just, it's, I'm in the final verse. And my brain says, you know, you really need to start working more. You've been taking a lot of time off. And I'm like, really, dude? Now is when you want to say that? Right now. You wanted to say that right now. So it's, <laughs> once you kind of, I feel like when I first started performing, it was a lot of like almost out of body experiences. It was so intense being there. But then there's like the next level of it where you become so familiar with performing that 
you can check out while you're doing the songs and observe that people observe yourself, observe the band. Um, yeah. So I don't remember your yeah, question. So that's but... <laughs> really interesting. No, that's really interesting. I think that's part of the beauty of an expressive activity is that once you sort of um, get yourself into that activity, you really can let yourself go. Like the activity will do it, will go on on its own. And then it frees your brain. This is what I think. It just frees your brain to kind of do other things. It frees your brain to look at the audience or it frees your brain sometimes, sometimes for me to, to solve problems I might not have been able to solve. Like it just puts me in a different space. I, I kind of liken it to maybe a runner's high. You know, you just yes. kind of feel yes. like you're somewhere else for a little while, you know, and it's like a magical kind of feeling. And, you know, you just kind of float along. It feels like things are going really slowly around you and, and you're just kind of floating. Yeah. Did you have that experience when you would take photographs of people when you really got sometimes, engaging yeah, with uh -huh. people? But yeah. Sometimes you just get into this whole thing and, and, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like an out of body experience. I almost felt like I was watching myself act like somebody else. Like, you know, I'm like, who is this person? Right, so <laughs> what did you just say? You know, and, I'm wondering, did you ever bump into someone you knew while you were doing it and it could like knock you out of your groove? It does. It, you know, what really does it, it knocks me out of my groove if I'm with someone at all. So if I'm with someone and we're driving along, cause I often will be driving along and I'll see somebody and I'll stop, but I can't do it if there's somebody else around. And I guess that's because I'm not a photojournalist. I think if I was a photojournalist, I would have that sort of training where it didn't really matter. Like I'd be so used to sort of doing my performance in front of other people, but I'm not like I, I you know, I, I, this is sort of like a solo quest for me. I go out and I find people and it's sort of, you have a conversation and you, you almost have like this very small community for a short time. You interact, you learn about each other and then you know, I get to take a picture if I'm, I'm lucky and then it, it, then it ends. And then you go back to being yourself. It's kind of strange, but it's very performative. The act of taking the photo for me is very performative. So, you know, as well as I, you know, as I said earlier, as well as being in front of the camera, right. It's to me, it's all a performance. And I think I would, I would even go as far as to say, you know, my personality is a performance as well. I mean, I know who I am based on my interactions with others, right? So I'm talking to you and you ask me something and I answer it, I learn about myself. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's how I feel about that. That's how I learn, you know, I what myself love is. That because me too, I'm having a conversation with you and I say something and I notice it come out of my mouth and I go, oh wow, that was, that was interesting. I just learned that about this experience or about myself or about this idea or concept. Yeah, I'm the same way, it's a... Uh... Yeah, it's sort of like this constant sort of like rebuilding. And I think when we don't have those interactions, it makes it, I think that's when you're, you become unmoored, yourself becomes more unmoored because we re really need that sort of interaction to um, validate and even just sort of just say, okay, you know, that's, now I know how I feel about that. Or now I know, you know, what my opinion is about that, you know, just through those interactions, even if they're small. Hmm. Yeah. And looking at it from that perspective, you know, that's one of the reasons this podcast has been such a blessing for me. You know, that I started it in person, uh, in January of 2020, my first, uh, 
interview, did a number of them in person, then obviously went to Skype. And throughout this pandemic and social distancing, I've been having these lovely conversations with people, really intimate, beautiful, inspiring conversations, which are not common. I mean, sure, we can talk with folks on the phone, we can Skype with their friends, but there's something about having an intentional, really, you know, curious conversation with a stranger that you have a shared experience with. It's just uh, I, I love that you said intentional because I think that is so important in our interactions that, you know, I think now that I've had cancer and I've been through a year and a half of treatment and now I'm cancer free, you know, I think my intentions and my intention about activities has, has changed a lot. Like, so when I approach someone or I speak to someone, I think I have more of more intention now than I did. I also feel that way about my artwork. I think there are certain projects that I'm working on where I really can see, you know, what my objectives are. There are others where I don't see, like with the hair project, I don't really see like this objective. Like it's not something that I'm doing because I, I have a goal. I really just wanted to share that with people. And actually I didn't look at it as an art project in the beginning. I, I looked at it as an expressive activity. I'm like, this is just something fun that I can share with others. But then it sort of became an art project, a collaborative art project. And, you know, I think that, along the way, you know, I started to develop maybe an intention. And I think that's so important for us. There are so many things that we do daily that we we might not really know why we're doing them, or we might have meaningless tasks that we have to do. So our intention isn't really strong when it comes to things like that. So I think it's so good for us when we we have something and we've got an intention and we can go forward and we we, we sort of set a goal for ourselves. Yeah, and like you mentioned, gardening like you know if say a person has the energy to garden like the first time i had chemo the both times when i had chemo it would get to a point where you know six months each time and i just you know i did not have the energy it was it would it would just crushed me eventually you know but when you do have the energy if you want to go out and garden it's like you know that you know if it's flowers or if it's vegetables that there's certain things that need to be done. There's something you wake up to do. You're like, oh, it rained today. I'm going to go weed right now or a little bit later because everything comes out so easy when the ground is moist. And and then, you know, these plants need to be uh, pruned or, you know, it's time to pull out these, you know, if you're putting in annuals, you want to pull them out. But, but just the whole thing, it's like to give yourself something to engage in, to intentionally engage in and look forward to. And Well, well it's a schedule, right? Gardening is a schedule. And I, I think that's so important to recognize that there's a cycle of life and there's planting the seeds, there's watching the plants grow, and then there's cleaning out the garden. Then there's, you know, the plants die and it's fall and we start again, right? So it's a schedule and it's a big cycle. And, and that's something that as a cancer patient, I think I started to recognize. I really became attuned to schedules and I guess there's probably better words for it than schedule. I, I, I seem to look at it as a schedule because as a patient, you're highly scheduled. At least I was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it became my job. That was my job was to be this highly scheduled patient. And in a sense, that's another performance, right? I wanted to be a good patient. I wanted to be the ideal patient. So that became sort of a performance for me in a way. You know, I wanted to make sure I, I was 
informed and I knew what I was doing and I knew what I was taking and I had good questions, right? I don't know why that was important to me, but it was. But again, I think it goes back to the self. It was sort of kind of just a way that I could assert myself because when Mm -hmm. you have cancer, there's not much you can do. You can't really assert yourself except by asking questions. You could stop, you could stop the treatment, but that's probably not going to help you depending on, on where you are in your cancer. But, you know, I, I think you lose that, that um, you lose control over your life when you have cancer and when you're being actively treated. And, and that's where my project sort of came in. Mm. And that's where sort of something like gardening comes in, right? Because it's something that you can control. It's something that you're in charge of. And it gives you a purpose oh. and an and an intention, right? So it, it's all of that. Yeah, I found one showing up, and I observed it, and then changed my relationship to it when I first, or when I was going through my treatment the second time. You know, unfortunately, I was quite comfortable with getting treatment, <clears throat> and I would flirt with the chemo nurses you know, playfully, lightly, not like, you know, I wasn't hitting on them, but I was being a re- flirt and like, you know, the more receptive to it, the more, you know, a little out there, a little more outrageous I would become. And finally I looked at a nurse and I said, you want to know why I'm doing this? I'm like, my experience of this is that, you know, my masculinity is like dissolving. My And I would tell what I'd say now is that my relationship of masculinity, my concept of masculinity, my need to be experienced as, quote, masculine. At this point in my life, I don't give a damn how you experience me other than I hope that I'm being kind and good. Like, however masculine I am to a person or not, that's fine. But back then, to say this is what I need and to answer honestly that I'm not doing well and to be cared for so intimately... I felt as a threat to my masculinity. Once I observed it, I said, yeah, I'm doing all this because that's my experience with you. And she just started laughing. She's like, I can't believe you're telling me this. I'm like, well, I get it. I, but it's, it's, I, I, I stepped into this character to navigate this experience until the character eventually got in the way. But yeah, we, we become performers. Like you said, you could be just a person yeah. walking down the street and you're a performer. And now we have social media. Everyone can be a performer, right? Right. Right. And I, I think that I spent I spent so much time in the hospital. My chemo was inpatient uh, oh, for really? the most part. And then I had surgery. I had a stem cell transplant. I had CAR T cell. So I was in the hospital for, for many, many, many days or weeks. And mm. I can't I'm not sure exactly how many times, but the longest stay was um, was three weeks. And then I had at least another two 10 day stays and then a a whole bunch of five day stays. So, so I was in the hospital a lot. That's a lot. And, and I think when you're in the hospital, you know, on the cancer floor where I went at Massachusetts general hospital in the cancer center, you know, the cancer patients get their own rooms. You have your own room, you're immune, you know, you're immunocompromised. I was neutropenic, you know, all sorts of things. So you need to be by yourself. What does that mean? Neutropenic? Uh, your white blood cell count is really, really low. Okay. Um, and that's as a result of chemotherapy. And, you know, when you have lymphoma, that's, you know, the lymphocytes are what you you want to have, um, 
you, you want those counts to be higher because it means you're fighting infection. And when they're low, it means you can't fight infection. Yeah. That's on a very rudimentary level. I'm not a doctor. Yep. No. So, <laughs> but <laughs> that's either. basically in a nutshell what it is. And so I would be in these in in the in the rooms and I was always on the same floor, you know, I was always kind of in the same area. I got to know the nurses. I had a number of the of the same nurses. And the funny thing about the hospital room is like, you know, it felt to me like a like a set, like a TV sitcom set. <laughs> you know, none of this was stuff I chose. None of the furniture is anything I chose. And people would come and go. They'd say a few lines and then they'd leave. Like it was like, you know, I just kind of felt like I was like on stage. And then there was in our rooms at, at, at Massachusetts General, you know, you have like one side is all glass. And it looks out, if you're lucky, you, you it looks out on some part of Boston, right? So it's mm. actually really beautiful. But you can see other people, you know, in the other parts of the building or, you know, across from, if you're across from like an apartment building. So it feels like you have an audience. And I think that space in the hospital became to feel very theatrical to me. I felt like I was acting again. I'm like, okay, somebody, I can, okay, at 10 o'clock, the art therapist is coming in. I got to get ready for that. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I get myself pumped up for that. The music therapist would come in. I'm like, okay, that's one o'clock. So I got to be ready for that. And then at you know, two o'clock, I get to nap. Thank God. Right. And then, you know, in the meantime, you're getting your drugs and you, you might be on an IV. I was on an IV most of the time. So I think, you know, you're forced to sort of meet people where they are when they come into your room, right? So you, so I tried to almost feel like I was the host, right? Because they're in my room. It was very strange. Mm. Like, I had a hard time feeling, figuring out what my role was, but I always tried to be friendly and I'd always be smiling. And, you know, I'm getting like all kinds of poison pumped into my arms, but, you know, I'm smiling nonetheless and I'm cracking jokes and I felt like I needed to be entertaining. And I don't, I don't know why. And I that might be mean. similar to you feeling like that your masculinity was sort of threatened in a way. And I think maybe I just felt like myself, my idea of self was sort of threatened in a way. I didn't know what I, who I was or what I was doing. So I'm just going to act it and fake it until I can figure out who I am, hmm. which I'm still doing today. I yeah. still feel like I'm like faking it because I don't really know what, I think it's been, it's even harder when you become cancer free, I think in some sense, because you have guilt over those who maybe didn't make it, who you, who you met along your journey, who maybe, you know, didn't survive cancer. And then, you know, my life had changed so much. I, you know, I just, my daily life wasn't the same. So I think it's been a very difficult shift for me because once you finish your treatment or you you get that, that fabulous, you know, um, information that you're cancer free, well, you know, it's not for me, it wasn't really a celebration. It was sort of like, okay, now what do I do? You know, and this could come back. So I'm not going to jump up and down and I'm not going to go out and, you know, drink a keg uh, or do anything <laughs> stupid. Uh, but I'm going to kind of like just take that information and just keep it in a part of my brain and also keep in another part of my brain, you know, my cancer's come back twice. So it could still come back again, or I could develop another kind. So, so I think that you just always have that, you know, in your mind to a certain extent. And, and that's where, you know, the performative sort of comes in because 
you know, I don't want to be thinking about that all the time. I don't want to be thinking, I don't want to be the downer when I'm talking to somebody. Oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with death and I'm obsessed that, you know, my cancer can come back at any time. You know, I don't want to be that person. So I want to be the positive person. So, you know, we kind of shift, you know, uh, I shifted sort of how my personality a bit. And I, it was hard for me to, you know, just focus on the positive because we all, we, you know, we all can dwell on the negative. We all can, we, I think we all have that capacity. And if you give your, give yourself some time to do it and then let it go, you know, give yourself time. Yes. If you want to dwell in it and you want to be negative, go do it, get it done. Worry about everything you want to worry about, but then say, okay, that ends right now. And I'm going to go do something else. And if you need to do that again, then do it again, do it another day, but, 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 have an end to it. Okay. I've spent a half an hour worrying about this. Okay. Now I got to go on and do other things. I've got that off my, my checklist. I've done my worrying for the day. And I think that's really important to try to separate those things out. And it takes, it's like, it's like working out, you you know, you, or music, you know, you have to practice things like that. And I think, you know, you practice that in whatever form works for you. If you need to sit quietly and get all your worrying done or get all your anxiety out, well then, you know, do that but definitely have a timer and just say, you know, okay, I'm done with this now. I need to go and be productive and I'm going to try and shut that part off and, you know, be positive. And, and, and that's a, that's an exercise. It is. It's a trajectory that you stay on. I'm with you. I was more than happy to allow myself to get upset, to be scared, to be sad uh, to be anxious, to worry, any of that. But then, you know, if you're attentive to your thoughts, you know, you notice when, oh, now I'm getting juice out of this. Now I'm riding this one like a surfer on a wave. It's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to step down now. Or, okay, now I'm becoming a drama queen or like, you know, I'm speaking for myself, right? Or just that, okay, huh? My, my, my unhappiness now has the reins. I seem to have stepped out of the driver's seat. Now, I actually prefer to look at life that I'm just riding shotgun, but I do have to like just, but I still have to do my job, right? <clears throat> I don't feel like I'm in charge of this life I'm living, Eileen. I just, I'm riding shotgun. But the idea is, you know, I, I'll notice with the thinking, it's like, oh, okay, I've now let it take the wheel and no thank you like you needed your expression and it got past me for a while but how do i want to live my life what do i want to create you know like and gosh like it's there's a couple things you said that just really just inspired me like you know the one thing you were like you you were clear that people wanted to be a contribution and that it's really hard to contribute and you can't necessarily do it. And how many pot roasts do you need? You were aware of that. And you said to folks, if you want to be a contribution to me, bring me hair, bring me something right. that I can put on my head. Like that, that picture of you with like the post-its on your head. It's like, it's, it's so colorful and beautiful and playful. And people get to bring you, people get to have fun in bringing things to you to support you. Like it's brilliant. Right. So, so the thing was like, you know, people had a lot of energy. So like, 
you know, as somebody who's a, maybe a little bit type A, I'm like, well, I'm going to harness that energy, right? You know, I've got to give them something to do because what they're doing now isn't helping. So, you know, I made the suggestion and then the really beautiful thing that came out of it was that, was that I could have conversations with people that had nothing to do with cancer while I was being treated. We got over those, how are you feeling kind of things. Because when, you, when you're being treated, I think after a while, you're like, don't ask me. Don't ask me how I'm feeling. I don't want to talk about it. But I gave them something you know, to do that gave me something to do. So we could interact on a different level. It was inspired by cancer, but you know, it wasn't about cancer. It was about, okay, so you know, how are we going to get this to work? And, and what colors do you have? And you know, that sort of thing. So it was, was definitely something that was fun interactive and just gave everybody a reprieve from talking about cancer and, and using the horrible short-sighted language that we have with cancer, that warrioristic and militaristic language that really struck me the wrong way. And to this day, I stop people. Do you know, I, I had somebody on the phone. I, I, I was talking to, um, maybe the insurance company or something. I had some kind of problem with my insurance. And, and I said, well, you know, I had cancer that you know, during that entire year. And, you know, I know I was covered for this, but now I'm not covered for it. I don't understand. And so at some point she said to me, oh, you're such a warrior. I said, no, I'm not. I'm a person with cancer. And, you know, can we just like move on? She's like, no, anybody who's had cancer is a warrior to me. And I'm like, well, good for you. Can we move on? Because that's not how I look at it. And look, I'm the one who had the cancer. So can I just tell you how I feel about that? But I've had that happen. That people yeah. just don't, mm. they resist it. And anytime someone dies and it's a celebrity or someone who's who we know, what's one of the first lines in that obituary is so-and-so lost their battle with cancer. I'm like, enough with that. You know, it, it's enough with that. We're not losers. You know, how come how come somebody who who got you know was killed in a car accident isn't a loser? But we're losers when we have cancer and we die, right? Wow, know. So, you know, it makes no sense to me. You know, you can die any other way, but no, if it's cancer, you're a loser. <laughs> you know, and it's a battle. And I I never once I've never been in the military. I don't know what it feels like to be in the battle. And I don't think that what I went through really was like combat. It was an arduous, emotional experience that was taxing and certainly difficult, but I would not liken it to a battle personally. And I really had such a, and still do have a hard time with that language. And I usually stop people when they, when they use it. And I ask them about that language. Because I think that it really doesn't, it doesn't reflect the experience. And I, I just like to let people know that, <laughs> whether they welcome my opinion or not, yeah. I do let them know. Because I think that we, we, it's so easy to fall back on language that we hear over and over again. And I think that in the case of cancer, that language is both outdated and it really limits what the experience is like. So maybe there were times where I felt like I was, I was 
you know, really struggling. But then there were other times during cancer where I was, I felt lucky in, in the sense that A, I was alive and B, that I was now given a chance to have a different perspective. And so I think that's, so when we use like these, these, you know, hackneyed expressions around cancer over and over again, it really short changes what the experience is like. And I felt so lucky that I got to interact with people on a much deeper level than I had before I had cancer. With my family, with my partner, Tom, you know, with friends, like I really felt we could have meaningful conversations and I was no longer afraid to talk about those things. And so that's why when everybody, anybody comes up to me and says, oh, you're a hero. I'm like, no, I am no hero. You know, I'm not saving anybody's life but my own. I, you know, I'm not a hero. I said, I, the people who gave me the drugs are probably the heroes. But I don't, I, I just didn't really even want to ascribe to that language at all. I'm like, we're just kind of, I felt like I was just a regular person and this is what happens in life. You know, for me, it was cancer. It could have been something else. It could have easily been something else. And this is how we are challenged through life. And it's how we work with those circumstances and work with our limitations that makes makes us a better, stronger person. I shouldn't say better. It just makes us stronger people. And it makes us more compassionate. I certainly feel like I've become a much more compassionate person since I've had cancer. Hmm. And that's a beautiful thing, right? Me too. What? There's nothing bad about that. And I, and I feel like I really want to know people and I want to know their stories. And, you know, like we're talking today, you know, you're telling me about your experience. And I think that's so important because that's how we learn to empathize and how we can become more compassionate. Yeah, I agree with you completely. It's uh, so much in what you said. Like I never really thought about, you know, lost the battle as a loser. And you're correct. That is the language of losing. Uh, I didn't really ever battle my cancer. I, gosh, I was going to say I'm going to keep this brief. I don't know if this is brief, but like, so first I'll say <laughs> I had a friend who had cancer three times and she died and she never lost her battle to cancer. If that's the language you want to use, she was always an extraordinary human being through the entire experience. She didn't lose the cancer took life from her body. The cancer took over her body and she died, but she never lost the battle. My friend, that's my friend, Mary, my friend, Tom, he never lost the battle. His body died from the cancer, but he didn't, he, like, I didn't even like the word survivor for a while. Cause I'm like my friend, yeah. Mary, my friend, Tom, like they were survivors the entire time of the, the diagnosis until I had a conversation with a different survivor, which I'll say now. And he said, you know, Bert, I don't apply the word survivor to people who are alive. He said, I like you have friends who are survivors the entire time. So when I use the word survivor, my context is a human being who didn't just quit, who didn't give up. And, and in that same breath, Eileen, my heart goes out to anyone who gets diagnosed and says, I can't do this. And that's fine too. And people are like, how can you say that? It's because it's their life and it's, it's life is profound and I'm not going to have an opinion. I mean, heck, you know, if it's a loved one, yeah, sure. I'll have a harder time, right? I'm a little disconnected. I can say it, but we, we 
we each have our own unique experience. And if someone's experience is I am a warrior in battle, okay, great. Then I'll know, then, then I can speak that language to you and I know that it serves you, but it doesn't serve everybody. And to, it really helps to listen to people before you encourage them because you know, like as a coach, as a cancer survivorship coach, one of the things that I've learned over the years is like, I've learned to keep my mouth shut and listen and ask questions. And it's amazing what people will say if we don't insert our own personal experience into their conversation, into the conversation they're having. Oh, I, you are so right about that. And I, I learned, you know, I was reading an article. This is during my cancer um, treatment. And I was reading this article and, and it really made it, it all of a sudden it became crystal clear, but it was about two women who are having a conversation. And the one woman says, you know, this is what's happening to me. And I feel so terrible. Um, you know, I, I, I lost my husband, my husband died and I'm struggling with, you know, with the finances and the pressure of, of having, you know, not having him, his income anymore and not having him around. And then the, the woman who was in the conversation replied, oh, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Right. And what you said is completely correct. Sometimes, especially I think in situations like cancer, let the person just talk, let them say what they need to say and validate what they're saying, but they don't need you to say, oh yeah, that happened to my Aunt Mary. Well, that's not relevant right. to a person who's sick. You know, when you're sick, your scope is much smaller, right? And you really can't see far beyond your own, you know, your own little, little uh, part of the world, right? Because you're so limited. And I think we really need to just be able to say what we have to say. And I encourage people to, you know, to talk and, and share their experiences. But when someone is telling you about their experience, really just let them go. You don't need to say, oh, I know how you feel because this, this, and this, you know, or I had a dog that died of lymphoma. Somebody said that to me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. My dog had chemo. And I'm like, Okay, I have a dog. I love my dog, but not relevant. <laughs> People do not know how to relate. They don't know what to say. My friend Mary, who I mentioned earlier, she and I were in a training program together, and it was this six-month rigorous, like, uh, personal growth, like, fierce training program. And she was my coach in it because she had just completed it. She was diagnosed. We talked a lot. Then when she left the program because she could no longer participate, I stopped talking to her because I didn't know how to reach out to her. I, I feared saying the wrong thing until finally, because of the program we were all in, she got some coaching and she called me and a bunch of other people. But, you know, she called me and said, hey, Bert, like, I have cancer. Where are you? I immediately burst into tears. I've told this story many times on this podcast. Like, I, Sorry if I'm boring those of you who've heard multiple episodes. But I burst into tears. I mean, I'm so sorry. I thought you were going to die. And I freaked out. And she's like, well, I'm not dead. So you're going to come visit? And what's my point? I was. Uh... Well, I, I think your point is that she had to be assertive. 
and sort of tell you the kind of behavior she wanted from you. Oh, right. And what I want to say is that people don't know how to respond to right. the possibility that you might die. Right. And so they come up with whatever their mind comes up with. And I bet half of them kick themselves when they walk away. They're like, I told her my dog had cancer. I am such a jerk. Like, I wonder why the person doesn't talk to me anymore because they're mortified about what they said to you. But, you know, for everyone listening, for all the caretakers and family members, it's like what to talk about with someone who's been diagnosed. I, I don't know. And I won't, won't give you any advice. But what I do is I say, how are you? And if they say, oh, I'm good, but my oatmeal was lumpy, great. That's where the conversation is going. If they say, mm -hmm. my chemo was really rough, and you go, oh, really? Oh, how was it? And they talk about it, and they change the subject, great, they change the subject. But it is hard for us going through treatment when people, everyone asks how we're doing. Because the 14th person you've seen that day, that's 14 times you saying the same thing. And now your whole day is you talking about something you're kind of over. So if you just right. ask a person a question, ask how they are. How's your day? How are you feeling? You know, and somebody, what do you mean? How am I feeling? I have cancer. Okay, well, now you know. They're angry. <laughs> yeah. But be willing to ask. Be willing to not know. Yeah. I, I also think there's the phenomenon that happens when we see a horror movie, right? We love to go see a horror movie and we love to be scared because it's not happening to us. Right. And I think that phenomenon happens like when you're talking to somebody who might be actively facing death, you know? You, you become, I notice that people would become quieter. They'd become more serious. And, you know, they, you know, it was like a different performance. It was a different tone. And, you know, they were, I think they feel relieved that they don't have it. Right. Yeah. And I, I would feel relieved too, right. <laughs> if it was too. that situation and nobody wants to talk about death, right. Nobody wants to talk about the black, the, the guy in the black hood in the room. Right. But right. that's, you know, that's the specter that's hanging over all of us. And, and that's the, the thing we all have in common. right? And, and I think that that's what makes it so difficult is that, you know, as someone with cancer and with so many unknowns, you constantly are reevaluating your relationship with death and your relationship with life. And I think that people who have not had those experiences in life don't have that opportunity. They don't have that opportunity to really get to know how they feel about death and get to know how they feel about life because, you know, they've not been in that situation. And it really gave, and being in the hospital so many times and being alone a lot of that time, you know, I really had an opportunity to think about it. And I'm not saying that I'm not afraid to die. Yeah, I'm afraid to die. But I can honestly say there were times when I was lying in that bed in the hospital and I just said, okay, if now's my time, okay, I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. If I'm going to, you know, I had some treatments that were horribly either painful or I had horrible reactions to them. And, you know, I, I just would lie back in the bed and I just sort of close my eyes and, and say to myself, okay, you know, I'm just going to breathe. And if this is the end, then this is, I accept it. And I accept that, you know, I might not get better from this. You, you do get to a point where you have to have some acceptance or else you can't go forward. I, at least that's what, how I feel. You have to accept certain circumstances. And from there, you can at least move forward because you, you know what your parameters are. And, and that was a really eye-opening thing for me when I finally got to that point where I felt like I accepted this. And that doesn't mean that you're not actively trying to live, right? 
I was, wasn't going to say struggling or fighting, but it doesn't mean that. It just means that, okay, I'm, whereas cancer might've been up here or down here or out here. Now we're like face to face. And now I understand all that comes with that. And I can accept that. It doesn't mean that I'm going to say no to my treatment. It doesn't mean that. It could mean that for some people. And I respect that completely. Mm -hmm. But it meant for me that I now just had a different relationship. And I felt like I was face to face with both life and death. And I could make some important choices based on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I had a similar experience. It allows for one to actually be with the experience and you know that can be translated for you know how we can navigate life itself and if if i could if i could take that way of being and map it out on my entire life i think i'd be enlightened i wouldn't need to be alive anymore right or whatever like it but for me it was you said so well what happened or how i navigated my experience about a month after i was diagnosed the first time this thought landed in my mind and I went, Oh my gosh, this cancer was a gift and it doesn't matter if I live or die. Like I'm going to live this experience. And like, if this is the life I've been given that I'm going to die of this, then I'm going to live this fully engaged. But what you said points to that, that includes sometimes dropping to my knees, sobbing and praying that I don't die. That was part of the experience. Doesn't mean Absolutely. that I it doesn't mean that I'm okay with dying. I was I, I didn't mind dying, but I wanted to live. I had a four month old kid. I wanted very much to be alive. But as soon as and again, like I feel blessed that that thought dropped into my mind. It was very early. It, I hadn't even begun treatment yet. Uh, but what it allowed for was to me it allowed me to navigate circumstances with some clarity otherwise wouldn't have been there because when I stepped into those places where I was like, I don't want to die. And I was crying my eyes out and praying and begging to not die. That wasn't grateful that it was a gift that was scared to death. That was heartbroken and devastated. And, but the trajectory I was on, the big picture was that I was like, I'm going to have, I'm going to live the experience I have. And it's a, it's like, you know, you can't really hold both experiences in one thought, right? It's just like giving yourself over to the experience. And it's it's not a requirement. It's not necessary. But for those of us, it serves beautiful, right? I mean, it's it, it applied to you and it applied to me. Uh, well, you know, I, I think that before I had cancer, I, I actually did some some. Uh, I, I do graphic design in my, my day job and I had done some work for uh, a cancer group and the name of the group was something like, I don't know if it's still around, was We Beat Cancer, right? And, and he wanted me to sort of work with that idea and, you know, come out with some sort of like logo or visual representation of that. And having gone through that experience and not having cancer, I, I now look back on it. And I'm like, Oh, how, you know, how wrong I was, right. How I really didn't understand that situation. And I also think that I probably now as someone who is a survivor, a word I don't like, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be in that p- position. I probably wouldn't be forming a nonprofit called we beat cancer. Right. Cause you know, t- to me, that was just not, 
like we talked about my experience, but this person actually had a military background. Okay. So then that made sense to me. Okay. So maybe that really was an ex-Marine. So maybe this is, that was his lens for looking at it. Right. And there was a commonality maybe for him, but for most of us, there isn't. And I just felt, felt like more than anything that cancer just really widened my view. Like it just, it just made me feel like I was only seeing a portion of my life before, maybe like right in front of me. But now I felt like I could see peripherally and I sort of had a much deeper sense of maybe how to cultivate some sort of meaning in my life. Mm. And I struggled with that a lot. And that now look, look at what you do. So you have this podcast and you probably, you know, that probably helps you and you help so many people, right? It's, it's, it's just a really great thing to share experiences and, and to talk with others and to hear what others have gone through and say, oh, you know, that happened to me or, oh, you know, that didn't happen to me, but I understand that. And I think that, you know, it just widens our capacity again, just for compassion. It really makes us a more, um, I think, a, 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 like a whole person. Whereas before I had cancer, I think maybe I was kind of half to three quarters of a person. Mm. You know, I wasn't quite there. I wasn't quite whole, but I feel a lot more whole now. Yeah. And in that way, I feel blessed by, there by you having go. it. Right. You know? Like it's one of the beautiful things about humans is that I don't know where the quote comes from, but, you know, and I'm, I'm going to, I'm sure I'm going to destroy the quote right now, but it's essentially like, you know, we are at our best when things are at their worst. Like it's, it's an incredible design, the human being that when we have traumatic experiences, life altering mind perspective, altering, we can find a way to create beauty and self-expression it's uh i think too you know after having been through cancer and i don't know if this you felt this way too um now you know like when my dad died i i sort of felt like i was prepared for that in a different way than maybe someone else would be i really felt that there were things that i could handle that i probably wouldn't have been able to handle quite the same way before and I'm really sort of proud of myself and how I handled that situation. It was very complicated. It's another podcast. It's a long story. But, mm -hmm. but essentially what I did, and some people might not feel comfortable with my, um, my expressive activity, but, you know, I had only taken one photograph of my father while he was alive. And we were estranged for at least 13 to 15 years, something like that. And I had only come back into his life about eight or nine weeks before he died. And he was, he was quite ill. And, you know, so I, I did photograph him post mortem, you know, mm -hmm. and I, and I think that's not for everyone and it wouldn't be something that I possibly could have done before having cancer, but I had such a different relationship with death at that point and, and still do. And I, I wanted to sort of, commemorate my father as I knew him, but also as I last saw him, I thought that was important for me to know, especially during COVID when we weren't going to have any sort of service. My, my father didn't want a service anyway. So th there was not going to be any sort of commemoration of life or death in my father's um, 
uh, in my, due to my father's wishes. Mm -hmm. And so I took that upon myself to find a way that I could make meaning out of that. And, and that is not for everyone, but it worked for me and it yeah. became a very meaningful experience. And I, you know, I went through his belongings after he died and I learned a lot about him and I photographed his, you know, his home as it sort of, as his belongings left the home. Like, and I, and that is only, again, something I could have done as having cancer, right? Cause I understood that because so how many times did I feel like, you know, I'm in the hospital and, and parts of me are just flying away. They're just, yeah. they're just leaving me. I don't know if I'm going to be a whole self again. And I felt just pieces of me would just fly out that window every time I was in the hospital. And so, you know, actually seeing my father's belongings sort of just leave and transfer ownership and go to other places was a very interesting uh, project for me to take up while I was still doing, you know, cleaning my hair. So I was still doing that and still am. But I was also doing this project with my dad at the same time. So it was mm. an interesting dichotomy because one is so much about life and the other one is about life. But it's it's sort of the life of the objects after death. It's like, where did my dad's stuff go? Kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, I so, love that. you know, so it's all kind of intertwined for me now. See, like, I think before cancer, I wouldn't have seen my projects as being related. But I think now, you know, so many things are related to me that I didn't think were related before. You know, I just find connections between lots of things. And I think that's a really great way to live. I feel so fortunate that I can see connections between things that I didn't see before. Mm. You know? Yeah. And, and and how lucky I am it, to be able to do that for myself. And, and I hope I can share that with other people. As you're speaking about your relationship to the passing of your father and how you experienced it and expressed it, and you speak about your own experience navigating cancer. Earlier, you had spoken about if someone's gardening and, you know, the seeds grow, the plant dies, the seeds fall into the soil. And it brought me to where you're saying, like, you don't know who you are. You know, like, who am I now? And I... You know, see the relationship between how plants grow through their cycle, you know, that, you know, annuals, they grow, they bear fruit, the seeds drop to the ground, plant dies, and then the new ones grow the following year. And like, as you have been going through your experience, and I experienced this as well through cancer, like parts of me died and seeds were planted, but the seeds, some of them haven't even germinated yet. I don't know. There was a long time I knew, like in that first month, after the first month went by, the first month of terror and freaking out, you know, when, it, when I finally had that thought, like, oh, wait, okay. Seeds have been planted, but you know, I don't know how many years it was going to take. I didn't know how many years it was going to take before they began to germinate and then to sprout. And I had a number of years of just being like, is that the seed sprouting? Is, oh, here's the seed sprouting. Oh, wait, that's not it. And just like discovering, like, like I'm not who I was. 
I discovered extraordinary parts of myself that only existed because other parts of myself died. And there's a constant death and rebirth that all humans go through throughout our entire lives. And, uh, you know, we often try to... We have ceremonies for them, you know. If it's a rites of passage or a wedding or a baby shower or, you know, what, you know those are the obvious ones, you know. But there, there's death and rebirth of self all the time that we don't discuss. And when and you I go... Think yeah, go ahead. I was say, when you go through a cancer diagnosis, uh, I mean, heck, a person could drive a truck, tractor trailer across the country and probably have the same transformation as well. You know, I'm not going to point to or suggest that it's only through having cancer or losing a parent. I'm just speaking to my own experience. A person could have it deliver in newspapers. I don't know. I mean, we have it in so many areas of life, but as cancer survivors, what you and I can, or we can connect and many people listening is that there are aspects of it that in order to move forward, certain parts of ourselves have to die, and that is after treatment. That's once we're in the all clear. It's when you, you ring the bell and you go, chemo's over. I'm like, yeah, but I have to get a CT scan in a month to see if it mattered. So, But I'll ring the bell because I guess I'm ringing it because now I don't have to be nauseous or something, right? Yay? Yay. Okay, yay, ring. <laughs> now I ring the bell. I went to the state fair. Uh, couple, last time I had it, a couple of years ago with the kids and we were walking through one of the expo rooms and there was a uh, Syracuse Cancer Hospital. I don't know what it's called. Sorry, folks out there. I don't remember what you're called, but uh, Upstate Cancer Center or something. And they had a bell and they said, you want to ring the bell? I told them I was a survivor and I wanted to ask what they were doing. They said, yeah, you can ring the bell. We have survivors ring the bell. I'm like, that's ah, okay. I'm not really into the bell. And they're like, okay. I walk away and all of a sudden I get just this washed over with emotion and this thought like, Bert, there are people walking through her right now. They have cancer. They have a loved one with cancer and they would love to know there's another survivor in their midst. So I've had cancer twice. So I rang the bell twice and I'm like, yeah, I had it twice y'all. So if you're out there listening, like cancer is not a death sentence, you know, it's like, it is what it is. And you know, there was a death and rebirth of self in that moment, you know, just like, oh, wait. Yeah, your humility is fine, but it, you could also put it aside and come from a place of generosity and love. And so I can't fully know your experience of navigating cancer and processing the passing of your father and taking photographs of the evolution of the experience but it it does speak to me it's i'm really moved by right it's that cycle it's just like you were describing like you you were describing so beautifully like these rituals that we have in life and i think that when we have cancer we're sort of forced outside of those rituals to a certain extent because you know everyone's cancer experience is different right it doesn't fit into ritualistic behavior and i think that that's where we have issues with it like we know how to act at a baby shower. We know how to act at a wedding. You know, we know uh, what is expected of us maybe at a funeral. But I think that when we, you have cancer and you're going through these really just, you know, steep changes, both in your affect and in your personality and in, you know, your environment, 
you know, it, it's very hard to have rituals around that. And I think I found rituals in the schedule of the hospital, right? I knew when I was going to get chemo, I knew what to expect, except of course, when I, the two times my cancer came back, right? So I became really reliant on sort of that, those rituals that, that the hospital afforded me because I really needed that. I needed that consistency because I didn't have it in the rest of my life. My whole, the rest of my life was just out of control. You know, I had nothing I could, nothing was the same. I was so different. There were pieces of me that were missing, pieces of me that were dying, others that were being reborn. And I just sort of really grabbed onto that schedule of treatment because I needed that consistency. And then when it ended and the bell rang, I just felt like I was like dropped into like a vat of hot fat. Like I just Thank felt you. like, oh my God. Thank you. Okay, see ya. Bye. Don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. I mean, I really just, and that's really where my challenges began. And I'm still going through that. And I'm still trying to figure out what, what that's all about. Eileen, what can we say to the medical world that will have them get that when we ring that bell and treatment's over and it's nothing but crickets, we've given ourselves over to our treatment, to the practitioners, to all the parts and pieces and all the things. And then it's crickets and we're alone. And like, they don't That's tell it. you that. They don't tell you that from, and for some people that don't think they noticed it. For me, I would go back and get a test and I'd wander into the chemo suite and try to talk to the nurses. They're kind of busy trying to keep people from dying. And I want to have a conversation because like, I want, I wanted that connection. Once I distinguished what that was, I'm like, okay, I can fulfill myself in a different way. But it's, I missed that connection so much. And I did the same thing. I would go back to the hospital and I'd be like, how come, how come we're not running into so-and-so? Or, you know, how come I'm not seeing this person that I know? And, and, you know, I felt that I was sort of like, I belonged at the hospital. Like I no longer belonged, you know, at home. I, I felt like I had a sense of belonging in the hospital and I, and I, I lacked that so much. And I had built such a sense of community. In like, where's my chair? Where, where's my chair? I want to yeah. sit down. Well, you're not part of this community anymore. But well, I right, want to be. You're not in here anymore. See ya. You know, and I almost kind of wanted to go up to the cancer floor and visit. You know, it's a, kind of like this very strange environment that goes back to my thought about, you know, the, the hospital is a very, it's a public place, right? It's like an airport. It's a public place. But there are spaces that when you are in the hospital, those spaces become yours. They sort of you kind of become proprietary. I, I feel like those spaces are spaces in which I started to act and feel like I was acting as a patient. And I had this sort of elaborate mode of behavior that I would use when I was in the hospital. Uh, I knew how to act. I knew what the menu was. I knew, I knew what was expected of me. Mm -hmm. And then when the bell rang, nothing. Just not, just nothing. Um, the cards stopped coming. People didn't send me cards anymore. People would leave gifts on my porch and I wouldn't get any of that anymore. And I just, I felt so alone. And I felt that that was one part of treatment that the cancer center really hadn't prepared us for. 
And I, I think there need there's a huge transition that happens once you stop treatment and once you become cancer free. Luckily, like we like we did, we became cancer free, right? So, but what what you can't, but what you don't learn is that you know you really are starting from the ground up. You're starting all over again. It, it was, it's a very difficult time. I, and and like you know I mentioned earlier, I think for me it was harder than the treatment because I at least knew that you know, I was going to get six rounds of chemo here, another three here, another three here, stem cell transfer. You know, the surprise was the surgery I had because I had emergency surgery because my, the chemo worked well the first time and shrunk all of my, my tumors in my abdomen that my small intestine started to wander around and got wrapped around itself. Mm. So I had to be rushed to Boston and I had to have emergency surgery. And, and that happened again two months later, the same thing happened, but it undid itself, luckily, which, which it can, they can wrap, they, they can kind of wrap around themselves. And then sometimes they just kind of sort of undo themselves. But, but anyway, um, but everything else was highly scheduled. And I, I just got so accustomed to that, you know, um, that even now, you know, I sometimes think, okay, well, this time last year, you know, where was I? I, I, I was, cancer-free. So I've been cancer-free since February of last year. And I said, okay, so I'm doing better than I was this time last year, right? I've, I've tried to accomplish a lot. I've tried to keep myself positive and I've tried to um, find new things to keep me active and, and that sort of thing. And I just try to keep that measure in mind that, you know, I'm, I'm so much better off than I was a year ago, but it's hard. You, you have to keep things you know, you keep things in perspective and you keep moving forward. You just always have to move forward. And that's what I keep telling myself, you know, yeah. move forward. Yeah. I joined a support group after my cancer was over. And I didn't know why I was joining it because I never was a part of a support group. But something said, just go. And I went and I'm still part of the group now. And there was validation of the insanity of just walking away from treatment and like, yeah, enjoy. There you go. Go live your life now. It's like, what? I'm not who I was. I don't know who I am. And now I'm supposed to walk around like, yay, everything's fine. Granted, no one said everything's fine, but really it's like, like you said, the cards start coming. Right? Like I want, I want everyone who's listening to be like, who in your life had cancer? And they're like six months out now. Send them a card. Tell them you're thinking of them. You know, I don't really like telling people what to do, but just came to my mind like, oh my gosh, like it is. I mean, that's why I became a cancer survivorship coach. You know, it's there's this gap, there's this void right now that. I mean, ideally, if a person got diagnosed, they'd call a coach. And then, because it's like, yeah, I've been through this a couple of times. Like, I can help you get through a lot of it. But people don't think that. Right now, where the cultural conversation is, call the doctor, oh, my God, and get one as fast as you can. And I'm not going to argue with that, right? But there's there's so many more layers to it. There's so much available to a person. And there's a huge vacancy post-treatment. And yes. it, it, it comes up so often. And, you know part of me is like, what can I do to 
get this out there, then I'm like, oh, well, this podcast is getting it out there. More and more people are going to hear this and be like, you want to know what? We need to do X, Y, and Z in the chemo suite once people are done. You know, maybe, you know, the, the bell ringing ritual, it, it's, it's so ingrained in us. You know, people, like, they want to ring the bell. Okay, wonderful. But I wonder what else, you know. And, like, being in a support group and, like, you know, like, someone say support group, and I'll just be like, ew. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It's just how I am. But then I get in when I'm like, oh, wow, this is, you know, really wonderful place to be. And, you know, and I'm supporting people who are going through their own difficulties. And th- Yeah, I, I think that's that's great that you do that because, you know, I hadn't heard of that before, you know, sort of a cancer coach. I think that's really needed. I think it's needed when people are transitioning from being patients to just being people again. It, it's, you know, it's just sort of that additional support. I, I belong to a couple of support groups and the one I just started is for survivors and this is through the hospital and it's only, it's a limited um, support group. It's only eight weeks. But that's a year, over a year after I became cancer free, mm-hmm. that became available to me. And I think the, you know, I certainly was going through a worse time this time last year, you know, with just that void. I mean, it, it's just, you feel like you, you're just walking around with this emptiness. And I think that, you know, I also had a huge hit with my self-esteem. Like I just, you know, here I was, I felt like I had been so productive, you know, in my life. And then I, 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 you know, I took on cancer and I, you know, I put all my energy into that, you know, but then afterwards it's like, there was, there was just like nothing. And I felt like my self-esteem just plummeted. Like, you know, who was I? And, And were people looking at me like, I just was like such a loser. Right. You know, I kind of, felt like I was walking around with like a loser t-shirt on. I, I don't know. I can't explain that, but I felt like people would, would automatically know that I was struggling, even though they had no idea. I sort of, you know, I've sort of, I must be giving off. I feel, felt like I was giving off that vibe that I was, I was in pain or I was struggling or I was, I was lonely. And, and I, I really didn't want to reach out. I was sort of ashamed at the way I felt, which is absurd, which I want to tell people is absurd. But you do, you, I, you know, some of us feel that way. I felt sort of ashamed that I couldn't get my life back on track right away, that I couldn't bring things together and I couldn't make things quote unquote normal. And, and that still hasn't happened for me. Yeah. And I, and I think that the, you know, the two groups that I'm in, the, the other one is an active um, group for people with cancer. And I, I recently just stopped going to that because I felt I wasn't sure I was being helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't sure. And I didn't want to be, you know, oh yeah, well, I know you're getting treated, but wait till that stops. You know, I didn't <laughs> want to be that person. <laughs> yeah. Come talk to me then, you know? So I sort of took a hiatus from that one. I'll go back to it. And, and the, the one that I, I go through now through the hospital is an hour and a half once a week. So it's, it's a, it's an intensive and it comes with a workbook and it's, it's focused oh. on relaxation and meditation and um, responses to stress and how to manage responses to stress. So that's, that's been very helpful to me. And I think that could have happened sooner. I think that the whole idea of managing stress should have, should have, but it wasn't, but could have been maybe brought up to me in the hospital 
you know, maybe I had a lot of visits from social work and, and things like that. Cause you know, like I said, I was in the hospital so many times, but I think maybe some of that time could have been spent, you know, just talking about, you know, so, you know, what are you going to do when this is over? You know, things are looking good for you, you know, even though nobody wants to say that because you're never really sure. But I never had that conversation with someone. And I think that even once the bell rang, it would have been nice to have the team at the hospital, you know, the social worker call me or someone call me and just see, you know, how I was doing with the transition. I ended up having to reach out to the oncology social work team on my own because I really needed the validation that other people who had cancer were going through what I was. You know, I felt, I felt like I wasn't. I felt like, oh my God, I'm the one who just who can't deal with this. And, and that's completely untrue. And there, and, and there are so many stories of people having this difficulty once they are cancer free. And, you know, it took me a long time to reach out to try to find help. Because again, I felt ashamed. I'm like, why can't I make this work? Why can't I do this? And that really, I learned that wasn't the mindset to have. The mindset was, okay, I need to express this and reach out to others who might have more experience with this than I do. And that was, that ultimately was helpful to me. Yeah, it sounds like it, it sounds good for you for reaching out to the, uh, Social worker. I bet it did because, you know, you said you felt ashamed and that's absurd. And you're saying that communicates that you know that it's not absurd, but there's an well, absurdity to but it there's an abs right. in, in there's the an experience. In the experience, you're like, you know, why would I be ashamed of myself? And I'm ashamed that I feel ashamed. It's just like you've been through you know the emotions yeah the <clears throat> and it's a big circle and it just keeps feeding on itself it's just you know just like stress it's just like you just can't stop thinking about it and that's what happened to me and now that you've been through it you get that that's just part of it why did i feel ashamed that i had cancer when i was diagnosed you know like what like you know i think too um there still is a little residue left of the thinking, um, the early cancer thinking that early on, um, when, when cancer, when we, when there wasn't a lot known about cancer and I'm talking about the late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, where we start to get language like, oh, cancer is a blight. And then we start using cancer as a metaphor to indicate blight or indicate things that are spreading out of control and, and that sort of thing. And I, you know, it goes back to language for me, but I think there yeah. also was an attitude that we gave cancer to ourselves. And I did get a little bit of that. I, I have to say, I, you know, I had a couple of comments that sort of, that sort of made me feel like, you know, okay, I didn't, I didn't eat enough kale. If I had only eaten enough kale, this would have never happened. Right. And I, I had someone, and I think this has happened to, I, I've met a couple of other cancer patients who this has happened to, said I had someone leave me a, a blender and a big grocery bag full of vegetables and a video about juicing, right? So, so, you know, I'm like, on the surface, this looks like a very lovely gift and a very thoughtful gift. Someone is, is, wants me to get better, right? 
But then, you know, me, the overthinker, the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, no, that person's blaming me for my cancer. And they're mm. telling me that I needed to eat more raw vegetables and I didn't do it. You know, and I need now I might be able to make up for lost time if I shove all these vegetables into the blender and drink them all down at once and do that every day as often as I can. You know? But that's how that's how it made me feel. You mm-hmm. know, more kale, more kale. And I still have that on this. On, like I have that on my shoulder. I've got, you know, sometimes, you know, I've got the good guy and the bad guy, you know, on my shoulder. And sure. You know. And there's the one guy over here. He's like, eat more kale, eat more kale. And I'm like, shh, stop that. I don't want to talk to you about kale. You know, but there's always like that, that nudging in the back of my head that, you know, I maybe, maybe I put myself in this situation, which is also absurd. Right. There's a real distinction between being responsible for your life and being blamed. Like one can create the life they want to live blaming yourself is very different. You see that conversation out in the world a lot. People talk about, they speak in terms of blame and fault. And that doesn't, that's not empowering. That doesn't lift me up. No. And there's already enough of it going on in my head. I don't need it from anybody else. And when, as you said, language is so powerful. And it's a great connection you made between, you know, cancer being a blight and then cancer being used as an analogy and then all of a sudden we have it you know oh i read the book the secret clearly i didn't do very well otherwise i wouldn't have cancer you know it's like right. wait a no, like okay that backfired right but it's you know and you know you say you know congratulations you know you be or, oh gosh when people say uh you know god blessed you and you i'm like well god didn't bless my friends who died Right. Like, and what I want to say is thank you for the acknowledgement that you're saying that I'm fortunate. You're saying you're happy for me. You're celebrating my, but the language God blessed you suggests that God didn't bless other people unless maybe Mm -hmm. their having passed provided the experience that others needed and therefore was also a blessing. But I don't think that's what people are saying. And, And this is not a criticism of people because it takes something to be responsible for how we live our lives. I mean, my gosh, if I spent my, if I put all my energy into my language and my intentions and where my money goes all the time and every little thing, I don't, wouldn't have time to live. It's like, I personally don't know how to do all that. So we do our best and it's not a criticism of folks who say it, but it's just more, uh, it's a observation of how our speaking can land us in places that we don't want to be. Yeah, I think we need to be mindful about our word choices. And I think cancer is just one place that reminds us that we can maybe think twice about, you know, how we're expressing something and how the metaphors and the analogies that we are choosing to describe someone else's experience. And I've become very sensitive to that. So I, you know, going forward, you know, and, and, and since I had that experience with someone, you know, sort of essentially saying, oh, you know, did you, you know, you, um, did you use Roundup or something? Is that how come you end up with, you know, you know like, okay, so it was How was it your fault? fault? Can you explain to us how it was your fault? Because I'm not clear yeah. what you did. <laughs> um, you know, you know, it's, you know, this is even worse. I, um, 
my partner, Tom, his sister, his sister died of pancreatic cancer and she died before I was diagnosed with cancer. She died a, a couple, few years before. And I do remember her receiving a blender. I also remember her receiving a big package of vegetables. I'm, I'm like, this woman has pancreatic cancer. Even, even then I knew, you know, that's not good news. That's not good. For, and no blender, no kale is going to get you out of that. Right. Give me the, give me the drugs you know, because the kale isn't going to do it. But I remember retelling the story about, her name was Eileen as well, about Eileen to a friend of mine. And I said, you know, Eileen was a long distance swimmer. You know, she swam around Manhattan. She swam wow. from, you know, Provincetown to Plymouth. She um, swam the English Channel, you know, that sort of thing. And you know what my friend's response was? She's like, well, she was swimming in the Hudson River. Maybe that's how she got pancreatic cancer. I'm like, what? And I just stopped. And I'm like, you know what? This conversation is over. There's no, there's no backpedaling on this. I'm not going to try to, this is not a teachable moment. I'm done with this. Yeah. But yeah, I think that attitude still remains, you know, to a certain extent. You know, but, but, but we don't say that to people who have older parents who might have dementia. Oh, did they give themselves dementia because they live so long? Right? We don't we don't make those. You know, we don't say stuff like that. And that's not how it works. And I, and I think that it's just, you know, cancer just has that culture around it. And that started from the very beginning. Yeah. I think cancer was looked upon that way it as. It, yeah, when I read, um, I read a book called um, Illness and Metaphor by Susan Sontag, and she had breast cancer. She was a, a critical thinker, and she wrote about photography critically. And she um, was Annie Leibovitz's partner until her death. When did she die? She died in the 90s at some point. Annie Leibovitz. Tell me who that is. I mean, it's not, it's not she was. Mind. She's a famous photographer who... Um, shot hundreds of covers of Vanity Fair. She okay. shot every celebrity you can imagine. Um, and she worked for Rolling Stone when she was very young. And that's sort of how she ended up becoming a celebrity photographer. But, but her partner you know, was, a, was a critical theorist on photography, which is really interesting uh, that the two of them you know, came together. Yeah. And Susan Sontag wrote this book called On Photography, but she also wrote Illness and Metaphor. And in that book, she describes that at the outset of sort of cancer being recognized as the scourge that it is, uh, tuberculosis was also a scourge at that time. And people looked upon tuberculosis a little bit differently as, you know, you had a personality type that was passionate and, and was, you know, fiery. And that's how you developed tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And you developed cancer because you were so inward. And, and, and you were, you know, you were kind of in, you know, into yourself and then attitudes like that changed over time, but that's how we end up with the thinking that people give themselves diseases and cancer in particular. It, it starts off with not having the science that we have today and people sort of making up stories about how these diseases form. And, and that's sort of, we still see a little bit of that today. I think. Yeah. And again, Two things. One, if a person wants to take on that they created their diagnosis and that inspires them to, to live in a way, if that inspires them to live in, in a way that, 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 that works for them, 
wonderful. But there's a great teacher, spiritual teacher named Byron Katie. And what I got, one of the most powerful things I got from her was stay in your own lane. There's your work. There's your business. There's other people's business. And there's God's business. And you don't need to worry about the other two. How many times do people not stay in their own lane? How many times do I not stay in my own lane? Have I <clears throat> given someone my opinion about what they're going through? And then looking back, it's like, what did that provide? Oh, that, that really took a shit on them. But I got to share my opinion. Like, mm -hmm. whoopee. Nice job, Bert. Mm -hmm. how, how Wonderful. You know, it's like my friend once said, you know, it's like, you know, people do that. They take a shit on your front porch, then they feel better. And now your front porch <laughs> is a mess. And then they walk away and they go home. It's not something we do on purpose. It's cultural. It's all part of what we do. But people can start noticing, are you staying in your own lane? How is saying that to this person going to help them? Again, going back to what we what I said earlier, when it's when you and I were talking about, what do you say to someone who has cancer? Well, why don't you ask them a question? Ask them how they're doing. Don't go in there with a preconceived notion. Maybe they don't want to take on that perspective on where the cancer came from. If they start talking about it, you want to support them in that, then great. Buy them a blender and a shit ton of kale. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but we often, and this is me included, we often don't get curious about people before we start sharing our point of view. I've learned as a coach and, you know, to, to keep my mouth shut and listen. Then in this podcast, I'm still learning to keep my mouth shut and listen because you say something, I get really excited. We're having a conversation. Often in the conversational world, we chime in. There's the folks who let us interrupt and there's the ones who don't or interject, right? And I take notes and I, so I can go back to them and I listen. And uh, But we like to blurt out what we're thinking. And one question to ask myself is like, whose lane am I in? Am I in my own lane? No, I'm in their lane. I'm about to step into their lane. This is their life. They, they haven't asked. This is unsolicited. Oh, but I really want to tell them. <laughs> yeah, I, I, get, I get it, Bert. You really want to tell them. Guess what? That's nice. Well, I, I understand that completely. <laughs> you know, you get excited, right? Somebody says something and you're like, oh, I've got to add this, right? And you really, it's, you really have got to learn to pull back. And, and I do the same thing that you do. Like, I have to like take notes. I'm like, I'll get back to that. But you know, cause I, I, I'm that personality and I think you are too, you know, you just get excited. You're mm. like, Oh yeah, I want to talk about that too. You know? And, and we, and we mentioned this earlier, you know, I think you just, you have to take a deep breath. You have to listen. And when it comes to staying in your own lane, I think that you know, there are times where you can kind of weave over, but you know, you got to make sure you got to be mindful, right? What are you doing over there? And is what you're doing meaningful? Or are you about to like, you know, send somebody off the road, right? So, so you really kind of <laughs> have to think about that using more metaphors than I really like. But <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> So I haven't even asked you yet. So tell everyone what kind of cancer you were diagnosed with. Oh, and you so. said what, three times now? Well, yeah, I have the initial diagnosis. And when? And how old were you? I um, was diagnosed in September. So I have a kind of a crazy story. Thank you so much for tuning in. I truly hope this podcast was of value to you. Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, anywhere podcasts are made available. 
To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. If you'd like to support But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. See you all in the next episode, and thank you so much for listening. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of Saint Kid. You can find him on social media as The Saint Kid. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The host and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.